morning, everybody. It's good to see you all. Now it's time to open up God's Word together. Mark 3, this morning, we are currently in an expository series that I've entitled, What to Live For. Today is the final message in that series, part four. In the first message of the series, we discovered that Jesus called and commissioned the twelve for a lifetime of ministry. Then, under the direction of the Holy Spirit, Mark, the evangelist, wrote down the names of the twelve, which can be divided into three subgroups of four. Three subgroups of four. In part two of the series, we surveyed the lives of the first subgroup, Peter, James, John, and Andrew. Part three of the series, we surveyed the lives of the men in the second subgroup, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, and Thomas. Today we'll be introduced to the last four preachers who were called and commissioned to preach the gospel to a dying world. So to pick up the context again this morning, let's read Mark three thirteen to 19. Please follow along with me as I read from the New American Standard Version. Verse 13, And he went up on the mountain and summoned those whom he himself wanted. And they came to him. And he appointed twelve so that they would be with him and that he could send them out to preach and to have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, and James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James. To them he gave the name Boanerges, which means sons of thunder. And Philip, and Andrew, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. These twelve ordinary men, whom were called and commissioned to preach, teach us something pressingly important. All twelve. They are patterns and models for us as Christians because they were average, finite, frail human beings just like you and I. We learn from their failures and successes. We learn from their weaknesses and strengths. And above all, we're reminded that God uses common, everyday people to accomplish His redemptive grand plan. Each subgroup is still subordinate to the second main heading of the main text here, this paragraph, of verses 13 to 19. The second made heading was the commission to preach. The first made heading was in verse 13, the calling to preach. So keep in mind in this final message that as we learn about these last four apostles, we're still building off the second made heading of the message I delivered four weeks ago. So if, if you've been out for a while or you've kind of missed a few of the last few weeks, then... Um, you, might, you might need to go back and listen to the message I preached four weeks ago, uh, or, or at least just, just re- remember that 
I'm on the ninth subpoint of the main second point. So, that said, let's get to the ninth man. Who is this ninth man? James, the son of Alphaeus. He is the first man in this last subgroup, which implies what? He is the leader of this last group. This James is distinct from James, the son of Zebedee, and James, the half-brother of Jesus. The half-brother of Jesus is the one who wrote the book of James and who also became the head elder of the church in Jerusalem. Remember, James is the one who stood up and made the judgment that Jews no longer have to be circumcised to be saved. So this James is distinct from those two Jameses. And we don't really know much about this James. We know that he's the son of Alphaeus, but who is Alphaeus? We don't know much, we don't know much about him either. But we do know that James's mom and Alphaeus's wife was a gal named Mary. A Mary who was an eyewitness of the crucifixion and a helper with preparing Jesus' body for burial. So with that info, we can conclude, reasonably so, that his family was a religiously devout group. They were faithful to the Lord. In other words, he didn't come from a pagan background like Matthew. Other than his family background, all we can really know about James is what his nickname reveals. In Mark 15, verse 40, he is referred to as James the Less. Less is the Greek word micros, from which we get the English word micro, meaning little. It could have referred to his physical stature, but most commentators suggest that it was likely a reference to his little influence in comparison to James, the son of Zebedee, one of the sons of thunder. So the distinguishing mark of James, the son of Alphaeus, was his obscurity. He was a man kind of like Andrew, who was not a strong, outspoken, bold speaker or leader. He was the kind of man who quietly stayed in the background, didn't have a lot to say. But at the same time, the Lord did choose him as one of the 12 apostles. Again, what does that teach us? It teaches us that God uses people with different gifts and talents. You don't have to be a Peter or a Paul to be an instrument in the Redeemer's hand. You can still live for gospel ministry without having a strong, boisterous personality. Although all believers are personally responsible to make disciples, you can still play a part in God's plan while being a James. Just because you don't stand in a pulpit doesn't mean that your work is any less significant. I say that because I've heard many times Christians who have never preached or never taught or have very little influence outside their immediate family, they, they feel like 
their work is, is not really that important. But that's not true. In fact, that's a lie from the, from the devil. Any gospel ministry you do is significant. Second, James reminds us that being a nobody is not a bad thing. And if you're young, this is important. Because our culture teaches us the opposite. And it's not cool to be ordinary. It's not cool to be common. It's not cool to be a nobody. But that's not from a biblical worldview. As we can see here, there's nothing written about James, the son of Alphaeus. Church history is silent on him. He's obscure. And he's not alone in his obscurity. There are thousands, countless men and women who have labored their entire lives in gospel ministry whose names have been omitted from history. In fact, to go a step further, there are countless men and women who have died for the sake of the gospel who have no tombstone. And that's okay. Because if we're to seek to leave our own mark on the world, if we seek to be remembered, then whom are we serving? We're serving self. I was deeply convicted by this quote I came across years ago by a German reformer. Not Martin Luther, by the way. He said, preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten. Now, shouldn't that be our mantra? You know, in some Baptist churches, you walk out of the main sanctuary, and above it says, mission field, right? Go out to the mission field. Well, I think what we should do is put this quote on our doorstep. Preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten. If that's our attitude, then that means we are really living for the glory of God. But again, we are conditioned to believe. Our children are taught in the schools that, that you can make a difference. You can change the world. You can do the impossible. Follow your dreams. You want to be a superstar on The Voice? On American Idol? You want to be the next Russell Wilson? Go after it. You can do it. Now, this is not to say having lofty goals is bad. If you honestly believe it, you're a great athlete, go try out. But we who believe must reject the individualistic, self-serving mission in life. Because we're here to deliver a message, aren't we? If you want to see the world change, brothers and sisters, listen. Preach the gospel and watch my Lord do the work. He will change it. We're not here to live for self. We're here to live for Christ. While we're here for a little while, and I'm here to remind you that Jesus intends for us to follow the model of James. Preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten. The tenth man called to 
preach the gospel, called and commissioned to preach the gospel, is Thaddeus. Who's Thaddeus? He is the second man in the third subgroup. Now, what's interesting about this man is his trifold name. Okay, this is where a list study is helpful because he has different names of Scripture. John mentions him as Judas, not Iscariot. Luke mentions him as Judas, the son of James. And in some translations, does anybody have a KJV, a New King James, or a Holman? What's it say? It says Labius, right? Whose name is Thaddeus. So he's Judas Labius Thaddeus. It's the same guy. And here in Mark, he's just Thaddeus, which means breast child. Evoking the idea of a nursing baby, which some commentators say he was named that because he was the baby of the family. We don't know, but that's just a, a guess. And like James, his leader, he was more or less shrouded in obscurity. The, 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 the only record we see of him saying anything is in the Bible is during Jesus' farewell address. You guys know what Jesus' farewell address was? The Upper Room Discourse. You guys know about the Upper Room Discourse? Well, it's found in John 13 to 17. Those chapters, John, John chapter 13 to 17, it's called the Upper Room Discourse. A discourse is just a speech or a delivery. And so we read before Jesus is arrested, he takes his disciples to be with him in his final hours in order to be comforted and to be prayed for. And though it is mainly a monologue given by our Lord, some of the disciples make assertions and some ask questions. At the end of John 13, for instance, Peter, you know, the man with the foot-shaped mouth, right? He asserts that he would lay down his life for Jesus, right? And then Jesus infamously responds with a prediction of Peter's triple denial. Then in John 14, we see Thaddeus pose a question. Chapter, John chapter 14, verse 22, Thaddeus says, Lord, what then has happened that you are going to disclose yourself to us and not to the world. Why disclose yourself to us and not to the world? In other words, Thaddeus was puzzled that Jesus would give these 12 men the time of day in a private room and not the world. Thaddeus wanted to know what makes us so special. We could rephrase the question like this. Lord, why not share these things out in the open for everyone? Instead of in this closed private room with a few of us. What makes us so special? You know what that reveals about Thaddeus? This man had a humble, tender-hearted, caring, compassionate heart. He wasn't asking about his prominent place in the kingdom, right? He wasn't saying, Christ, I'll go die for you. Let's go to war. No. 
He wasn't concerned about his own brash opinions. He wasn't consumed with self-interest. He wasn't concerned with taking over the Roman government. He really wanted to know, why conceal these things? Why tell us, don't let your heart be troubled? Why tell us that the Helper is coming? Why, why pray this lofty, theocentric, doxological prayer for us? You know, I think we need a lot more Thaddeuses, don't we? His question was answered by Christ in verse 23, and we don't have time to go deep into it, but it's no doubt that it eventually took root in his heart, that, that he... He, he, in that he took the gospel to Mesopotamia and preached there. And even though I think this is important for balance, sake, Thaddeus was a meek and mild man, but, but that doesn't mean he failed to courageously preach the truth. The truth. You know what Paul says about the truth with a capital T in 1 Corinthians 1? It's stupid. The gospel's stupid. Remember, in 1 Corinthians 1, he says, it's foolishness to those who are perishing. So unbelievers think the gospel's stupid because they, they trust in themselves. They, they can't accept a free gift of grace. And I don't know about you. I don't know when the last time you evangelized somebody, but most of the time when I evangelize somebody, they, they think it's stupid. So a, a meek and mild man or woman doesn't mean they're timid or cowardly. doesn't mean you shut your mouth all the time. We know that Thaddeus was well-balanced in his ministry because he was clubbed to death for his faith, literally beaten to death. Which, when I read these biographies of these men, I, I'm just flabbergasted at this contemporary Christian idea that being a Christian means everybody has to like you. They hated the apostles. So much so, they killed them all. Thaddeus never retired from the gospel ministry. He finished the race. He heard his master say, well done, good and faithful servant. And so I wonder how many of you would align yourself with Thaddeus? How many of you are quiet, tender-hearted, compassionate, and caring? I know some of you are. But some of you are off balance, too. You think that being quiet and tender-hearted also means that You have to go to any like necessary to be someone's friend. But let me caution you. Don't let your propensity to be tender-hearted towards sinners hold you back from speaking the true gospel. Be tender-hearted. Be an example, because that's good. 
but don't be proud of yourself for being tenderhearted when you can't remember the last time you evangelized someone on the street. The eleventh man, called and commissioned to preach the gospel, is Simon the Zealot. Simon the Zealot. He is the third man in this group. If you look down in chapter 3, verse 18, he is called Simon the Canaanite. He's also called that in Matthew 10, verse 4. That title does not refer to the land of Canaan, but to its root meaning, which is to be zealous. The term zealot does not reflect his personality per se. It is a reference to a political party. In Jesus' day, the zealots were a well-known, widely feared, fanatical, extremist political group. They thought it was their duty to overthrow Rome by way of militant force. Sometimes that meant that they would assassinate Roman soldiers, political leaders, and even their own people. All because they believed no one had the right to rule but Yahweh alone. One commentator describes the zealots in this way. They were the red-hot patriots ready to die in an instant for what they believed in. You guys ever heard of Josephus? Josephus is a Jewin, uh, Jewin, Jewish uh, secular historian. He said this about the zealots. Listen to this. They, the zealots, say that God is to be their only ruler and lord. They also do not value dying. Any kind of death. Nor do they heed the deaths of their friends. Who does that remind you of? Does it remind you of ISIS? Does, does, it, does it remind you of the fanatical, militant, violent, sadistic, extreme Muslim jihadists? It should. Because that's exactly what these zealots were like. Just on the other side of the coin. Now think about this for a minute. Jesus picked a guy like this to be one of the twelve. Simon, a fanatical rebel. Terrorist. How can a violent criminal turn into a proclaimer of the good news? How can that happen? Sovereign grace. Don't you ever dare tell me that Jesus Christ is not sovereign. 100%. God calls his servants from every background transforms them, saves them. And as Steve Lawson said at Shepherd's Conference last week, he, he, he doesn't knock on the door of the sinner's heart. He rips the door off the hinges, and he goes in. And he calls them. 
be his messenger. And he commissions them for a lifetime of service. Sources say that Simon took the gospel to the British Isles. And we don't know how he died, but sources say that he was also a martyr. And so before we get to Judas, I want to spend the bulk of our time on Judas this morning. You get the picture of this man, right? Simon the Zealot. What do we learn about him? What do we learn from his story? Well, God can take the worst. I mean, sometimes we kind of fall into Roman Catholic homardiology. You know what homardiology is? The doctrine of sin? And we tend to think that an external religious boy or girl who grew up in a setting like this is better than Osama bin Laden. But that's not true. My children's heart is just as black and hard and needed regeneration just as much as Osama bin Laden. So God takes whoever he wants. A goody two-shoes, like Peter, who was raised in a faithful Jewish home. Or you can take a serial killer. Break their heart of stone. Give him a new one. And send him to preach. Is your God big enough to leave room for something like that? I hope so. He takes the worst of society and transforms them. He did it then. He does it today. Amen. The twelfth and final man called in commission to preach is Judas Iscariot. He is the fourth man in this third subgroup. He is listed dead last, which indicates his lack of personal relationship with Christ. As I've said throughout this series, uh, this list is from, goes from the men who are closest in intimacy with Christ to the least. So right off the bat, that tells you Judas was not close to Jesus. And we're all very familiar with this man, right? You know, I mean, you don't have to be even a believer to know who Judas Iscariot is. Judas Iscariot was the epitome of an instrument of Satan. We could discuss this man for hours because his story, number one, creates an element of mystery in our theology. And number two, it's perplexing to learn that one of the twelve would be an apostate. So for the sake of time, we can't deal with every issue surrounding the man, Judas Iscariot, but let's consider one, one hard lesson from his life. But first, we, before we do that, let's, let's just do a brief survey of who this man was. Who, who is this twelfth man on Mark's list? Well, his name, Judas, means Jehovah leads. So the name Judas itself is nothing bad. But given the connotation, you probably won't name your kid Judas, would you? His name indicates his parents must have had great hopes for him. Which 
I can only imagine how heartbroken they were when they found out what happened to him. His surname Iscariot signifies the region he came from. That region was in Judea, which is significant because his home of record makes him the only one of the twelve that did not come from Galilee. So he was a bit of an outsider. He was a bit of a stranger, a loner from the beginning. Judas was a southerner, and the rest were northerners. And there's, while there's no evidence that the disciples disliked Judas or distrusted him, many say that Judas's anonymity played a part in his trickery. Because they didn't know him. They didn't know from Adam. They didn't know who his family was. They didn't know his background. He was just some dude that Jesus picked to be on his team. His call to discipleship is not recorded in Scripture, which is also the interesting fact. So it's obvious, like the other 11, even though his election for service is not recorded, he, he followed Jesus in the same manner, willingly and immediately. But here's where Judas begins to veer. Due to his lack of involvement, really until Jesus' betrayal, before he goes to the Sanhedrin to sell Jesus for the same price as a slave, all we see him say is chastise Christ for wasting the perfume, for uh, Mary wasting the perfume on Jesus, remember? He says, wait, we, we could sell that for a lot of money and give it to the poor, right? That reveals something telling about his character. So from there, we, we, we see that Judas's heart, his loyalty was only external. Judas was a phony from the start. In other words, his heart was not genuine, he never was a follower, and he never really believed. In reality, Judas was motivated by selfish ambition, greed, and power. He wasn't interested in the kingdom of God for spiritual salvation's sake. He was probably interested in a physical kingdom like so many, but when he realized that wasn't going to happen, that's when he sold Jesus. The one treacherous act he's known for proved this. The one thing he's known for proved that he was a phony from the beginning. If you look at the end of verse 19, this whole section ends with a qualifier, a descriptive phrase about Judas. What's it say? Who betrayed him? That word betrayed in the original is parodidomai, which means to give over, to hand over. In this context, it means to deliver over to the power of someone. So that's what Judas is known for, right? 
Judas gave, delivered over his rabbi to the power of the Roman government to be executed. Matthew 26, 14 to 16 records this. It says, Then one of the twelve, the one called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and asked, What are you willing to give me if I, paradidomai, deliver him over to you? So Judas says, Name your price. I'll give you Jesus. So they counted out for him 30 pieces of silver. From then on, Judas watched for an opportunity to hand him over. This was not long after Judas had a problem with the perfume being wasted on Jesus' feet. So let's have a conversation about this. Why? Why in the world would Judas do this? A man who walked with Jesus for three years. A man whom Jesus selected. Why? Well, first of all, Judas hated Jesus. Why did he hate Jesus? Because Jesus didn't come to do what he wanted him to do. Jesus was worldly. So therefore, he thought in worldly terms. He won an economic military kingdom. But Jesus said, my kingdom is what? Not of this world. So what do phonies do when their leaders fail to meet their expectations? Oh, I can tell you from experience, they turn on you. Religious people, phony religious people, fake religious people, or externally loyal, they will turn on you like the, in a drop of a hat if they don't get what they want. Some of you know what I'm talking about. So Judas did that to Jesus. So Judas, Judas hated Jesus for that. Number two, this is where we're going to like have a little challenge maybe. The second reason why Judas betrayed Christ was because he was destined to. It was Judas's destiny to do exactly what he did. Unlike the others, Judas was not chosen for redemption, but to play a crucial role in leading the Lamb of God to the slaughter. Did you know that Judas's betrayal Betrayal was a fulfillment of prophecy. Zechariah 11, 12 to 13. Zechariah 11, 12 to 13. You can jot that down and look at it later if you want. Psalm 41, verse 9, and Psalm 55, verses 12 to 14. If you have a good study of Bible, it'll be all in there. So the question that comes up is this. Can Judas be culpable or responsible or blamed for what he did if he was foreordained to do so? That's the question that comes up, right? Have you ever thought about that or asked? Maybe some of you are asking that right now. Well, 
You don't have to listen to what I say. I'll appeal to Christ. Luke 22, 22 says this. This is Jesus speaking. Truly, the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. Sovereignty of God. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. Woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. So you see, Judas is fully responsible. We are confronted here with the unsolvable tension between divine sovereignty on this hand and human responsibility on this hand. Both are true. Is God 100% sovereign? Did you decide to follow Jesus? No. Are you responsible? And did you obey the call to follow your master? Yes. Spurgeon said this of this tension. It is only folly that leads me to imagine that these two truths can ever contradict each other. It's folly. But they do converge. And they will meet somewhere in eternity. Close to the throne of God, whence all truth doth spring. A little English in there, old English in there for you. So Judas hated Jesus, but he was also predestined to do what he did. That's why he did it. Now, briefly, there's a lesson I think we all can learn from Judas. And it's simply this, brothers and sisters. Examine yourself. Examine yourself. Be on guard. Watch your life and doctrine so that you don't become an apostate like Judas. He walked with Christ for three years, listened to him, ate with him, slept with him, heard his teaching day in and day out. Yet he sold Jesus out. There are countless men and women and children who appear to be genuine Christians who later in life reject Christ and his church. They do many good deeds. They get baptized. They attend services. They serve in ministry. They even evangelize, but later in life, they abandon everything they once professed. How does this happen? Well, again, Scripture says in Second John 2.19, they went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us, but their going showed that none of them belonged to us. So the truth is that people who abandon the faith, that's all an apostate is, by the way, someone who abandons the faith, they were never truly saved in the first place. You can't read Romans 8 as an honest exegete and say that you can lose your salvation. That's borderline heresy. So like I said, Judas was a phony from the start. And all who leave the faith were also phonies. 
So it takes a lot of love to ask you these hard questions, but are you a phony? Have you professed faith in Christ or why, and why? Why are you here? Why do you follow him? There are Judases in every age because they started their walk on false pretenses. So it's good and biblical to examine yourself often. See if you are in the faith. Examine your motives. Examine your motives. Are you in it to win it, as they say? Or are you in it for God's glory alone? Those whom persevere, those whom are truly born from above, persevere because they follow Christ out of love and thankfulness. That's produced out of a saving faith in the person and work of Christ alone. That's what we learn from Jesus. Eleven out of the twelve apostles displayed true faith. They persevered to the end, even though at times they were impulsive, they were brash, they were judgmental, they were doubtful, they were prejudiced. They were violent and traitorous. And I speak of Matthew when I say traitorous. The Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, I never cease to be grateful to the disciples. I am grateful for their record of every mistake they ever made and for every blunder they ever committed because I see myself in them. I see myself in them. Do you see yourself in the disciples? By nature, we're no different than them. They were elected to salvation by grace. They were called and commissioned to preach the gospel. And so are you. So are you. They lived for the glory of their master. And practically, you know what that means? You know, we hear ad nauseum. Still a deal of Gloria, right? Live for the glory of God alone. What is the chief end of all man? To glorify God and join forever. What does that mean? How do we do that? It's so obscure, usually, when people say it. Well, the way that you glorify God is by preaching the gospel. What other thing under heaven gives God more glory than declaring the gospel? So it is God's will for you and me to do the exact same thing the apostles and their disciples and their disciples and their disciples and their disciples did. Preach the gospel. Live with the evangelistic mindset. You have been called and commissioned for service. And if you're not serving Christ by preaching the gospel, and if you are not functioning as a member of the body, repent. You are responsible to be equipped for ministry and to do it. 
that is what you should live for. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that you've given us these clear marching orders. Please give us many opportunities, many open doors to preach the gospel, to be refined and to be renewed in our zeal, not to go cold and not to just coast through what little time we have left on this earth. Father, what an evil thing to do. What an evil thing to do to grow cold and to quit ministry. Oh, Lord, please, please give us zeal. Please give us renewed passion for the truth, for the gospel, for ministry, for evangelism. Please teach us. Please forgive us for failing. Please reconcile us and renew us. Restore us. And through the Spirit's illumination and enablement, and by depending on the Spirit, maybe do what we're called to do. In Jesus' name, amen.